So we're beginning a new series entitled Revive, and if you've got any church background at all, you've heard this word revival before. Even if you don't have a church background, this probably isn't a new word. And what I've discovered, when you use the word revival, various pictures come to mind. If you play the word association game, and uh, and someone says revival, and you give your immediate response, I found that, that we all have a response... But they're vastly different. And so to be honest, if you say the word revival to me, immediately I think polyester suit. I just do. Because I've seen some revivals, and that seems to come with it. There's a dude who comes in with a polyester suit. And you don't see those every day, so it kind of stuck out to me. Other people have different things. You might think of a tent, right? There's a meeting in a tent somewhere that lasts for a while. Uh, but, but we all have different experiences. Some people, it goes even further into something extreme, and you think of maybe people falling out on the floor, strange things happening uh, that, that are a little, a little confusing, personally, and you're not quite sure what to do with. Uh, but, but I want to unpack all of that and kind of set that aside. So whatever your word association with the word revive or revival was, I want to ask you to just kind of put it aside for the moment, and let's talk about the actual meaning of the word Revive. Right, So it is to infuse with new life. So it assumes a couple things. One, that life had been present and that vitality had then diminished. And now for some reason, something outside is bringing new life, new vitality, new energy into something that was once living, but now is becoming numb and deadened. So it's different from bringing life. It's reviving. It's where life had been, resuscitation is occurring. And so when we talk about revival in a spiritual sense, we're talking about someone or a church that had once having known the Lord, walked with Him, loved Him, been close and near to Him, having drifted and faded in their love and passion for the Lord and for the Gospel of Jesus Christ, now being renewed and brought back to their former state. And when you think of it that way, you immediately kind of see some problems in the way revival plays out in America. Because in my background, we would do revivals on a scheduled basis, which assumes a couple flawed things. One is that we're dead every year around September. Like for whatever reason, around September, the church has, has drifted to the point that it's no longer capable of following the Holy Spirit in ministry. So in October, we need a revival because every year at September, this happens. The other thing is it assumes that scheduling additional meetings is the solution to the problem. The problem is we don't come to church enough. We don't meet enough. So if we have more meetings and more preaching, then that's going to fix the problem. And so what happens is you have this kind of man-centered perspective, predominantly kind of charged in America by the ministry of a guy named Jack Finney, who believed that there was a formula that always led to revival. And he would go from town to town, reusing the same formula, promising results. Finney became the predecessor to what we know as the revivalist. We usually call them evangelists, which is another kind of funny thing. Because the idea of revival indicates that there had once been life. And that that life was now shrinking back. And the evangelist comes to bring life where there's only been death. There has been no life. So it's kind of odd. We bring in a guy who's purportedly an evangelist to do a revival, but a revival is about the people of God being reignited with passion for the purpose of God and the work of Christ. So it's a little odd. So I don't know what your experience with revival is, but if you look at the meaning of the word, it doesn't fit. 
Some things things a little off. So what we want to talk about these next three weeks when we talk about revival is going to be something significantly different than that. It's going to be ultimately about the Spirit breathing new life into a church that is fading in its vitality. Bringing an awakening of affections for Christ and a passion for His work. I love the way uh, John Owen reflected this sentiment in the 1830s. He said, Herein would I live, hereon would I die, and herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections. To the withering and consumption of all the painted beauties of this world, under the crucifying of all things here below, until they become to me a dead and deformed thing, no way meet for affectionate embraces. He says, wherefore, the blessed and the blessing sight which we shall have of God will always be in the face of Christ. Therein will that manifestation of the glory of God and His infinite perfections and all their blessed operations so shine into our souls as shall immediately fill us with peace, rest, and glory. This is what John Owen said. He said, oh, that I would dwell on the person and work of Christ, namely that Jesus is God's only Son, high and exalted over all dominion and power and authority, that He is ultimately the place of all glory and beauty and power and authority, that I would dwell on Him and His work, that He died for my sins, that He who was worthy of ultimate glory and worship descended becoming a human being born as an infant, being obedient, Philippians 2 says, even to death on a cross, so that wicked men such as us, by His blood, could be brought back to Him, so that I would dwell on that in such a way that the painted beauties of this world would become dead and deformed. That they would be wretched and ugly to me, that I might dwell upon Christ. That kind of affectionate stirring for the Lord is what we're talking about. We're talking about the people of God being consumed with the glory of God and that reverberating out into the community, reverberating out into a church that is now passionate for the gospel and passionate for rightly worshiping Jesus as He is, passionate in confronting and rejecting their own sin and confessing it and growing. That's what we're talking about. We're We're not talking about evangelistic meetings, guys. We're talking about a movement of God's Spirit within the people of God bringing brokenness and repentance that results in a witness before the lost world that draws men and women to Christ. So I, I'm, I'm not, we're not doing like Pack the Pew Sunday next week. I, I'm not going to shave my head if we get 700 people here. None of, none of those little gimmicks. What you'll see through this three-week series is, I mean, just put it old-fashioned word, a call to repentance and brokenness before God. And, and then some kind of biblical responses of how do we pursue this? How do we, if we want to see new life, if we want what what John Owen described his desire to be, to have those kind of affections for the Lord and that passion for Him, if if we want that, how do we pursue that? Because, to be honest, we're we're not there. And and so the first part of this is just kind of convincing you that there's a need here. And these statistics I'm going to share with you, they're not new. um, And they're not entirely all that helpful, but they do paint a picture of what's going on in the church in America. So, a few things that, that, that I want you to see. One is, just to be honest, we are a hard-hearted people. We are a people who are covered in solid biblical teaching and, and generally have no sensitivity to Christ. We, we can come to church and hear gifted teachers at other places or when our other guys teach. Guys who can open the scriptures and just unfold them before us with with just surgical precision. And somehow our hearts are not affected. 
when I was in Uganda, just to give you a little contrast, um, got to teach at the Bible Institute where they train pastors, where men will stack up in trucks like sardines and go 12, 13 hours across the country in the heat so they could sit in a shoddy room and hear some guy who's, who's Texan is not good at all try to translate into regular English what I'm saying so that they can glean something. And they hang on every word. They, they live in this kind of shoddy dormitory. They've, walked away, they've left their families back at home for almost two years where they get to go home for summer and Christmas. That's it. So that one day they get the hope of going into some village and pastoring a church that can't support them so that they can work a side job just to provide for their families. So they can live in a two-room house that doesn't have electricity, most likely. This, they will sacrifice all that for the ministry of the gospel. And, and we sit here in the States, and, I, and I've been to seminary, and, and I don't hang on those words. I mean, there were some classes where you just, you just had to finish. You, you, just, you just had to get it done. Maybe, maybe I'll catch the, the, the online version later to cover what I missed because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not all here today. Whereas there, it's, they've given up so much. To hear God's word taught, there's a sensitivity to it. I'm not saying we need to go back to Uganda, that we need to you know, devolve everything and sell our houses and move into huts. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What it does show us is, is what it looks like to see a people receptive and passionate to hear the gospel compared to those of us here in the States, including myself, that have become numb. So here's what that plays out like in the churches. 95% of Christians have never shared the gospel with someone else. Have never led someone else to Christ, is what the stat actually says. So maybe they've shared, but they've never actually seen someone turn and trust in the Lord. 95%. So in this room, maybe 20 of us, if the number plays out. Only 2% of Christians are actively involved in something evangelistic, which means we're going to war every day with 98% of the army staying at home. 85% of believers, they say, convert before they're 14 years old, which I don't know where all those numbers come from, how they come up with that. But here's what I will tell you. We've used that as a mandate for children's ministry, which it should. But when it kind of read into that, it means we do a decent job of leading our kids to, the, to Christ and nothing else. Like, what that means is adults in America don't become Christians. And we're going to place American religious identity into that, which says that, that faith and belief is a private thing for home, and you don't bring it into the public marketplace. Don't try to impose your beliefs. Don't share them with me. Don't tell me what you believe. And as Christians, we're all too happy to go, yeah, that, that's right. We don't, we don't need to do that. They believe their thing. I believe that. Which ultimately means we don't believe the gospel, because the gospel proclaims that if they don't trust in Christ, they're destined for hell. And we're going to say, I'm going to respect their opinion... I'm not saying be rude and nasty. I'm saying if you love them and you see them about to walk off a cliff, you should yell that they should stop. But, but we, we share the gospel with our children at home. Because, you know, they don't know any better to ask us questions. They trust us. Every year, they estimate that 4,500 churches will close. 
and about a thousand new ones will start. Now, before you weep over that, most of those churches don't preach the gospel anymore, so the kingdom's not really affected. That's a whole different problem in the American church. That entire movements and denominations completely walked away from the gospel. So, so uh, if some of them close, like, let's not really weep, right? Um, but you see a trend developing here. In 1900, there were 27 churches for every uh, 10,000 Americans. Today, there's 11. The average church size in America is less than 100, even with the mega church going. Most of them will not baptize anyone this year. The Schaefer Institute provided a lot of those statistics, as well as a book by Michael Parrott, Street Level Evangelism. Now, in addition to that, we look around and we kind of see, if you're familiar with the Bible, Romans 1 playing out in front of us. Where Romans 1 describes this downward spiral of sin that ultimately results in people approving all sorts of wicked and just dreadful acts and acting like they're normal. We kind of watch that going on. I think the sixth state in America just approved homosexual marriage as if two men living together could be a marriage. We can call it what we want. It's not. God instituted marriage. God created marriage for a man and a woman committed to each other for one lifetime. Anything other than that, a man and several women, a man with a girlfriend on the side, a woman with a woman, a woman with two men, however it works, is not marriage. We're seeing the spiral in our culture since 1973. We have murdered about 53 million American children. If you really want to look into the numbers, there's a racist tendency under that because two-thirds of them have been minorities. In America, a black child is far more likely to be aborted than a different ethnicity. Planned Parenthood has strategically placed their abortion clinics in African-American neighborhoods. It's a black genocide going on that, that many people are supporting, that, that our government helps support these organizations, and Romans 1 is happening in front of us. Now, I don't say this like, like this is a sign that the end is coming, because Jesus says the only sign you'll see of me coming is me coming. That's Matthew 24. But what I am saying is that this is an indication that there's a sense of deadness going on in America. And this isn't to rail against the culture, guys. I expect lost people to act like lost people. But what it does demonstrate is a diminishing influence and reach of the church to take these people who are characterized by sin like we were and draw them into the faith knowing the Lord. And right now, if you're listening to this going, okay, well, the pastor just, he got back from Uganda. He's a little sleep, probably He's one of those fundamentalist guys that just yells things. I just want to kind of put a gut check in there. Is the fact that you don't see the problem is only further evidence of our deadness. In his book, Adopted for Life, Russell Moore, who's a, a pastor and professor at Southern Baptist Seminary, tells a story of adopting their children from Russia. And he describes going to see them. And he says the orphanage there had this eerie silence. The children didn't cry. Because when they cried, no one answered. And so years ago, they stopped crying. That's the church in America. We've become so starved spiritually. In the midst of effective Bible teaching, we've become so starved that we don't even feel hunger pains anymore. So we don't cry out. Because we're used to this anemic state. It's become normal to us. 
And the fact that it doesn't bother us, that we don't grieve like the men of old do, demonstrates our deadness. I mean, you read the Psalms. In Psalm 42, you find David saying, As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. He's talking about a deer in the desert about to die. This isn't cute. It's not a watercolor on a coffee cup or Thomas Kincaid painting. This is a, this is a horrible depiction of an animal on its deathbed panting for water. In Psalm 63, he says, My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He says, I'm going to die without your presence and spirit. And we're just comfortable. We're, we're okay. Because we found a way with caffeine, sugar, all the other trappings of the American world to medicate whatever it is. And I'm, I'm just as guilty as everyone else. With our prosperity, we have found the ability to shelter ourselves from the pain of what's going on in this lost and dying world. We don't have to see it. Someone gets sick and they're dying. We don't have to be reminded of our mortality because we can ship them to a home. Which, I'm not saying don't go there. There's good care there. But what it's resulted in in our culture is that we're not aware of death and dying. It doesn't seem real to us because we've done all we can to not see it. And so we, we walk around with no sense of the gravity of death, no urgency for eternity. And the church is witness to that. Our results and impact and reach into the world demonstrates it. And what we need is not a series of meetings or some weird extra-biblical manifestations and people falling out. That's not what we need. We, we don't need another evangelism training. We, we don't need another spiritual gifts assessment. We need brokenness and repentance before God and pleading for His Spirit to move. And we need Him to bring a revival in this church, this community, and this country. That's what we need. We don't need more cool gimmicks. We don't need five steps to being a better you. We don't need every day to be Friday. We need the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and in this country. And so what I want to do now is tell you the story of a church. The story begins in Acts chapter 19. I want to ask you to go there. I think you'll relate to the story of this church. If you're new to the scriptures, I just want you to soak this in. If you've read them before, if you're familiar with these texts, I want you to begin to think about the story of this church in Ephesus that begins in Acts 19. I want to tell you the story as you turn there. Uh, before Paul arrives, a man named Apollos is there. He's sharing the gospel with people in Acts 18. Uh, he, he's got a few things right, but he's off on a few things. So Priscilla and Aquila, who had worked with Paul, they pull him aside and they kind of coach him. Not long after Paul shows up in Ephesus, begins the work of planting the church. And it's kind of slow going. It's just the normal thing. He's meeting with people. He's sharing the gospel. He ends up at the Hall of Tyrannus. And for two years, he teaches every day. What it appears is that people would work in the morning, have an extended lunch break. And then maybe they'd go back to work in the afternoon. And during that time, Paul would meet in what appears to be probably a school as they were on their break. And he would teach people. He was sharing the gospel, reasoning from the scriptures with people that Jesus was the Lord, that he had died for our sins and risen again. And salvation was found only through faith in him. And so every day he's doing that. The scriptures tell us that, that the ministry was, was so bold that, that everyone in the region of Asia heard the gospel. But things are just kind of moving along and then something happens. It's, it's an amazing story in Acts chapter 19 if you look at verse 17. Before we get there, um, there's a story that I love here that, that Paul had been healing people. 
to the point that even like handkerchiefs that he had touched, um, people had been healed of, like legitimately healed. And he didn't sell the hankies on TV, right? But the Holy Spirit was active. And some guys, these guys, sons of a guy named Sceva, who was a Jewish priest who did some exorcism rituals for pay, they said, you know, look what Paul's doing. I want a piece of this action. And so they decide when they're casting out this, this demon and this possessed man, there's seven of them there at the house. They're like, hey, let's throw the Jesus card. Because I think it works. And so they're trying to do this exorcism and they tell this demon, in the name of Jesus... Who Paul preaches, I command you out. And the demon turns and looks at him and says, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but I don't know who you are. And I just love that because like, they, like we know who Jesus is because James tells us that they know. They know he's Lord. And we've heard of Paul. Like There's this clamor in the dark world about who Paul is. And they look at the we don't know you. And so they beat these guys, all seven of them. This one guy, demon-possessed, seizes them, beats them, strips them naked, kicks them out of the house running and bleeding. So one man overpowers seven and knocks the pants off of them and sends them out. And when that happens, something neat goes down in Ephesus where people begin to fear the name of the Lord. And then we come to the story in verse 17. It says, It became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and a fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now look at what happens in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing their and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So I want you to see what happens. A fear kind of falls on the people. And what then initiates this amazing movement of God within them is the church, believers confessing and repenting and disclosing their acts and even burning their magic arts, the books that were very valuable to them. So we're not talking about some guy in a polyester suit in Florida burning Qurans when he's a Christian, right? We're not talking about burning someone else's book. They had their own, and they said, we're, we're done with these. And then something ticks off in Ephesus. Many people become begin coming to Christ. And, and, and one of the problems that that brings for people in Ephesus is that they make their money off this temple for Artemis, which is this false fertility goddess. There were silversmiths there that, that made a good living selling these idols to people. And the gospel spreads so much through Ephesus that they're having a hard time earning a living. This would be equivalent of the strip joints going bankrupt. Because no one will go. Because they've all been converted and they'd rather go to a prayer meeting or stay at home and teach their kids the Bible. And and a riot breaks out. The Gospels advance. There's been this great move of God to the point that the the sinful basis of the economic system is shattered. And, And with this riot, Paul has to slide out of town. But in Acts 20, he's able to see them once again as he's saying goodbye to them. He has them come and meet him outside of Ephesus as he's sailing towards Jerusalem. And if you go to verse 22 of Acts 20, this is what Paul says to them. Now I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course... And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
And now behold, I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. But pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I want you to see what Paul says. He he brings the, the leaders of this church of Ephesus to him. He says, guys, I want to meet with you. So the elders come down and he meets with them and he reminds them of his ministry before them that he proclaimed the full counsel of God's word, that he didn't hesitate to proclaim all that God had said for the three years that he was there. And then he tells them, look, I'm not, I'm not going to see you again this side of heaven. He said, the Holy Spirit confronts, confirms to me every time that, that this path to Jerusalem will ultimately lead to my death and we won't be together again. And he loves this church and he pleads with them. He says, listen, there will be false teachers coming, teaching twisted things. They'll be bringing weird doctrines and you need to be alert and aware. And more than just people coming from the outside, some of you will be drawn away. And so he gives them the stern warning to watch out for strange doctrine, for weird theology. He says, watch out. As a shepherd guards his flock from wolves, you be alert. And then the story of the Ephesian church goes something like this. It, it, it traces throughout Scripture. The, the letter to the Ephesians comes up. Where Paul begins teaching them. And in the first couple chapters of Ephesians, it's all theology. It's all doctrine about the gospel. And then he flips it in 2.11. He says, but, but watch out for unity. You need, you need to have unity. So, so yes, you need good doctrine, but you need to guard the unity of the church. And then he, he writes First and Second Timothy as Timothy's leading through some controversial kind of rough waters there in Ephesus. And yes, the, the letters to Timothy are about church leadership and how to structure things, but they also are about the, what the emphasis of his ministry are. And in First Timothy one, as well as First Timothy four, you find and Second Timothy four, you find him saying, "Look, you need to do what's in accordance with sound doctrine and the gospel." So we got sound doctrine again, but he says, don't, don't walk away from the gospel. Don't just teach duty and doctrine. It's got to center around the gospel. Don't walk away from that. And then John writes, as an elder in Ephesus, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, where he talks about sound doctrine, but he says, don't forget love. So we've got sound doctrine in Ephesians and unity. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, he says, you've got sound doctrine and, and the gospel. And then in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he says, yes, sound doctrine, but Hold on to love. And you can almost see kind of the apostles coaching the Ephesian church. Because he's told them, he says, you watch out for false teachers. You hold sound to what is right and true. Hold sound to good theology, good doctrine. Hold on to that. And then he kind of comes alongside going, hey, hey, don't blow each other's legs off on this. Like, let's, let's engage each other with love. Let's don't, let's don't forget our, we're to proclaim the gospel. Let's just don't become a seminary. Let's, let's reach people with the gospel. And let's show people that this doctrine all centers around what... Christ has done. So you, you see him kind of, as they're getting off, you see the apostles kind of pulling them back. And then the last words to the Ephesians church in Revelation chapter 2. The Lord Jesus, as revealed to John, has some words in chapter 2 verse 1 for the church in Ephesus.
This is what he says. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, I write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's using some figurative language to describe seven churches and Jesus' authority over them. We could go more into that, but that's not really the point. This is his word to them. He says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And if we just stop at verse three, I really like the church in Ephesus. Right, they have patiently endured persecution. They have held firm to sound doctrine. They don't, they don't tolerate sin, which I take to mean they would be like one of the 2% of churches in America that actually do church discipline the way the Bible describes it. I'm saying this is a pretty good church. I would like to attend there. I would like to be their pastor. I like the church in Ephesus. But then Jesus flips it on us and it's a bit unexpected in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I want you to think about this. What what Jesus says here, He says, look, having sound doctrine and persevering under persecution and, and pursuing godliness and confronting sin are insufficient. Jesus says, yeah, you do those things, but you've lost your first love. And unless you repent and remember where you have fallen from, I'll turn the lights out. I'll close up shop today. It's not good enough, apparently, to teach sound doctrine to confront sin and to to persevere under persecution. Christ says that that church, the doors will be closed. I'll walk away. And what He calls them to do is to remember their first love and to repent. Now, these seem like really harsh words from Christ. It almost seems out of character. So what I want to do for a moment is show you that this is not at all out of character. Go to John chapter 15. It's not like, like Paul had, or John had this weird revelation of the Lord that just didn't seem right. It just doesn't sound like Jesus. So look at John 15. Verse 5, we'll begin with one of those favorite verses that you put on a a t-shirt with a beautiful vineyard and and, and some grapes, big clusters of Concord grapes. The Concord grapes don't grow there, uh, but that's our picture. John 15, verse 5, he says, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We say, yes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a beautiful moment. And then Jesus flips it again. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. You see that? This isn't me like trying to stir the church into affections for This is Jesus saying, if you abide in me, if you stay close to me, if you walk with me, you're going to bear fruit. But if you don't, I will prune you and burn it. I want to go to one more text that's very similar to this because I think it answers a theological question we might have. So if you'll go back to Numbers 13, you see a similar moment in the life of the people of Israel. Here's Numbers 14. Here's what's going on there. Um, God has brought them to the promised land with a mighty hand. He delivered them from Egypt. He sustained them through the wilderness. And He brings them to the verge of going in. Twelve spies go in to spy out the land. And 
ten of them come back saying, we, we can't do this. We can't take the land. We're going to die if we fight them. They forgot that God had won all their victories for them. And they said, we're going to die if we go in there. Only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, we, we can do this. The Lord is powerful. He'll, he'll give us this land. So the people refused to go. Moses, kind of knowing God's wrath because he's seen it poured out on the Egyptians and everyone else who has stood in the way of God's people pursuing his promise says, I better go and plead for God's mercy. So he goes before the Lord. He begins interceding. And he's asking God to forgive this, this wicked people who's disobedient, much like us. And in Numbers 14, God responds to Moses. Begins in verse 20. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers and none of them who despise me shall see it. You go to verse 22. It says, say to them, excuse me, verse 28. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land that I swore that I would make you dwell except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, will bring in, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lie in this wilderness according to the number of the days for which you spied out the land 40 days a year for each day and you you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure i the lord have spoken surely i will do all of this do, I will do to all this wicked congregation that are gathered together against me in the wilderness, and they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And I, I want to, because this answers a question. These were God's people, redeemed by His hand, and He has forgiven them. Their salvation is not in question. That's what God says. Moses says, please forgive them. God says, I've forgiven them. I've forgiven them. They are not rejected to hell. They will ultimately be redeemed by the blood of Christ. And I've, I've set their sin aside and forgiven them. But they will die in this desert. And the birds will feed upon them. See, if you're a Christian, this isn't a question of salvation. We are saved by the blood of Christ has nothing to do with us. It is all His work from beginning to end. And, and we cannot override it in our sin. We can't sin so much that God is unwilling to save us. But we can wander in the, in the wilderness for the rest of our days because of our sin. God forgave them. But He says, you'll die in this desert. And He has done it to thousands of churches in the West. And we would be arrogant to believe that he could not do it here or anywhere else. And, and I don't want to leave you on this, this note that says, oh, there's no hope. There's always hope. But the hope lies in this. It lies in repentance. That's Jesus' word in Revelation 2. He says, you repent and remember from where you've fallen. Repent. 
Repent from your lack of love for Him. Confess your sin. Confess that your your heart does not well up with joy in Christ as it should. That you don't worship Him as you ought to. That we don't pursue the Gospel going to our neighbors and to the nations as we should because we kind of only halfway believe what He says about those who don't trust in Christ. So we repent of our unbelief and our apathy towards the suffering around us. He says, remember your first love. Remember what Christ had done and the fear of the Lord that you had. And while looking at your own sin and going, I am utterly wretched that Jesus has loved me. And and, and be amazed by that. That's one of the problems that the church in the West has had is that we've walked away from that story of the blood of Christ being shed to draw wicked men to Him. And, And what we did is we assumed everyone in the church knew it and we began giving them five steps to this or that. Three steps to make your wife do whatever you want, which is just manipulation with Bible verses on it. And then when I do the steps and I, and I kind of pull the strings and she doesn't do what I want, I'm, I'm miserable with God because He didn't give me something He never promised. And, and see, some of you come today and you just wish, like, Ski, give me five steps to the Holy Spirit's power in my life. And I'm going to tell you one, and, and it's not a guarantee. You need to repent. That's it. The call today before us is an attitude of brokenness and repentance before God. Recognizing our utter and complete need and that we bring nothing to the table with Him, but that He, in His goodness to us, has chosen to love us and save us. Not because we are good, but because He is. And to plead with Him for the power of His Spirit to be resident in this place, in our lives, in our community, that hopefully the tide will turn. And it's not just kind of nationally or, or regionally. I'm talking domestically in our own home. Some of us, we've got some stuff going on that we utterly need the Spirit of God to move. And I'm saying a heart of desperation is the beginning point. It's no guarantee that God's going to fix everything. But it's our only shot is to be desperate and dependent and broken before Him. And that's the call before us. The next few weeks, we'll answer some questions about how do we press in, how do we pursue this. But today, I want to leave you with the call to repentance. And if you're not a believer and you're hearing this, I want you to understand that what awaits you when you die is eternal judgment and the righteous wrath of God for your sin. You have sinned against a God worthy of all praise and glory. And because of that, you have a debt you cannot pay. And God is a righteous judge, so He must judge us according to our evil deeds. A righteous judge doesn't let someone off the hook because they did some good things. We don't don't proclaim a man who burned down a home and killed a family not guilty of murder and arson because he worked at Habitat for Humanity. He doesn't get to plead that. He's guilty and he'll be judged. And God is a righteous judge and He will judge us as our sins demand. But He has made a way in His grace to save us. All of that penalty, all of that judgment was poured upon Christ. Christ died for us. The Scriptures say the righteous for the unrighteous so that we might become sons of God. And if you're not a Christian, today is the moment that you can place your trust in Him. That by faith in Him, not your own works, not the things you're going to do, no promise or, or deal you think you've made with the Lord, but that you trust Jesus, that He's God's Son, that He died for you. 
and that He rose again. In that moment, you become an heir to the promises of God. You become brought into the family. The Bible says He adopts you as His Son. And He promises you eternal life. And for the Christian in the room, you need to focus on what He has done. And in humility before Him, plead for Him to move once again. Because He's already proven that He loves you. So my plea with you is that we would just kneel before our God and Maker. And that through the blood of Jesus and the power of His Spirit, we would see God move in this place in a way that none of us could boast. That He would move in your households and your families and your workplace in a way that you can't take any credit. That it's just God. It wasn't cool strategy or a great plan. It was God. It was the power of His Spirit. And that we would just worship Him for that. Remember that first love. Let's pray. Father God, You are good beyond our understanding. You are good beyond what we deserve. Father, we are wretched and sinful. We have rebelled against You. Even if You have loved us infinitely, we have continued to resist Your love. We have not worshipped You with our whole hearts. We have been a rebellious and wicked people. Our hearts are full of all sorts of deceit and wickedness and, and that spreads out into our homes and our churches and God help us this whole country and we pray that you by your spirit would begin changing that and that you would begin this moment with breaking us. That you would devastate us so that we might see our need for you and plead with you and quit trying to manufacture the things of God but trust you to be you pray that you would create a dependence and a reliance in this place, that we would look to your son and what he's done for us, and we would have no other claim, no other authority, and no other plan other than the glorious gospel of your son. pray that it would permeate our homes, our marriages, our workplaces, and this church. And Lord, we pray for this city and this country that, that your spirit would begin moving in like-minded churches around the, the globe. In Jesus' name, amen.